Welcome to each of you. It's good to see you. Uh, vision for the future. Uh, this is somewhat of a looking back. It ain't looking ahead. And uh, I confess it's somewhat of a challenge. I was born in Lynchburg at a place that I doubt many of you know. Guggenheimer Hospital. I believe it's on Grace Street. Uh, I was born June 1, 1948, and uh, my family, we lived in this community uh, in Marysville, in the house that has since burnt down. And uh, uh, sometime in I believe November or December of 1950, we moved to South Boston and attended Ebenezer uh, Mennonite Church there. And we were there for, I believe, four and a half years. Some things I remember quite well. We moved back up here on June 14, 1955. And I believe it was my mother's birthday. That's part of the reason I can remember it. So we were there four and a half years. And during, during uh, those four and a half years, uh, sometimes when I think about those years, I'm kind of surprised at how much I remember. I remember things like the sign on, at the front of the church, which read, um, Enter Quietly, Be Seated, Worship. I uh, don't remember the verse, Habakkuk. I don't know, to whatever, I'm not sure. Uh, I remember Sunday school. I remember Beulah Good uh, teaching my Sunday school class. I remember summer Bible school. And I remember Ruth Good running around playing with the children summer Bible school. Uh, I remember, uh, no, it was Lena who was running around, Lena Good. I remember Ruth Good leading singing in front of church. I was impressed by all of these things. I remember how they did communion. They didn't do it like we do it here. Um, I feel like I need to say I'm sorry because I don't really remember any sermon. <laughs> Maybe that says something about, I don't know, about sermons and preachers. I, I really don't know. Um, but I would say about those four and a half years that when I think back, back to them, I have pleasant memories. Uh, they, they, I think, gave me uh, somewhat of a foundation for thinking about church. And, and uh, when, I, when I think about Ebenezer to this day, I have pleasant thoughts about them. And I know, I'm sure they have the difficulties and challenges, but I still have pleasant thoughts about Ebenezer. And 
of course, I have had many experiences and have um, developed my understanding of church and the meaning of church um, a lot since then. But still, that is uh, kind of foundational in my thinking when I think about church. And, and when I, whenever I go to Ebenezer, whenever I'm there, uh, my mind goes through these four or five things that I think about, and they're, they're pleasant thoughts. So after, um, after 50 plus years, it has been that long, of uh, responsibility in church life, uh, I'm more aware than ever that it's difficult to have a healthy, vibrant, visionary church. That is not an easy thing to do. And I would say it's, it's uh, maybe the word I should use is impossible. It's difficult to do this unless people have a common understanding of who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. There has to be some kind of foundation and some kind of, I'll use the word vision for what they are about. And I kind of hate to say this, but it is the truth. Uh, so I, I was here in the ministry before uh, moving to Pennsylvania. And I don't know if I thought a lot about vision in those days. I got to Pennsylvania, and I was uh, responsible for faith builders uh, leading in administration. And there was where I first was struck with how hard it is to create a mission statement or a vision statement. And, and if you thought you knew, if we thought we knew what we were about, it was even harder to get it in some words that you could actually communicate it to people and they would get it and be as excited about it as you are. It was just so hard. And then, and then I was asked to be the pastor of the church there, and so we went through this same kind of process trying to talk about what do we believe? Who are we? What do we care about? What are we trying to do? I mean, are we just getting together on Sunday morning and saying things? What is this about? And it was the same kind of struggle, kind of like what we had talking through our, our covenant, which is what we did. We talked through what do we believe. And it's just amazing to me, thinking back over these things, how hard all of this is. And you would think it would be easy if we just knew what the Bible says about whatever, and then we would just know and agree and be excited about it. So the, the term that I'm using this morning to describe knowing who we are and what we are doing is the word vision. So to define vision a little, vision, I have this in your notes, 
Uh, vision is the ability to think or plan about the future. With knowledge, imagination, and wisdom. And vision for the future requires knowledge of the past, imagination, and wisdom to project into the future the knowledge that you have about the past and the value of the past, the meaning of it, and how does that inform where you're trying to go in the future. So vision for the future requires knowledge of the past, imagination, and wisdom to project into the future, and the ability to be captivated by that vision. And maybe that's part of the challenge is, is how to be captivated by what you believe. So maybe another way to say it, how, how do you live into with energy what you believe? So this morning I would like to uh, summarize what I believe from Scripture history and uh, theology teach us that a church should be and do summarize what Anabaptist Anabaptism claims to be and do and evaluate whether Anabaptism provides an adequate vision for the future. And at the end I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about weaknesses of Anabaptism. So what a church should be and do, uh, so the Church of Jesus Christ should, I believe, articulate and embody a compelling vision for these seven things that I have on your notes. Right now, I can't find my notes. Thank you. <clears throat> so, the way I've listed them here uh, is worship, singing, praying, observing the Lord's Supper. I'm sure it could be more than that, but I, I confess that that I do care a lot about worship. That, that's why I talk about some of the things I talk about when it comes to singing and how the morning service is ordered, structured, and worship. I mean, I think you could argue that you don't really have a, um, a spiritual community if you're not worshiping God well. So worship, it doesn't mean it has to be perfect, but uh, it needs to be thoughtful, intentional. And the second one, teaching biblical doctrine. Uh, what, it, what does the Bible say is true? What, what is true? It, it is very hard, it's impossible actually, to grow people and, and to bring people into a, 
or secure foundation as a Christian without truth. You cannot do it based on lies. Falsehoods, wrong impressions, so biblical doctrine, truth, uh, beginning with who Christ is, which I've decided now by this age that who Jesus is is the foundation of truth. What he taught, what he lived, who he was. And the third one, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel, the good news, the good news of his life and death and resurrection and present life. <clears throat> of course, there's a lot of content to what that is, but the gospel. And, and one part of the good news, one part of the gospel is that it is for all people. It is for all people, Jews, Gentiles, every nation, every ethnic group, everybody in the world. The good news is, is that everybody in the world can belong to the family. <clears throat> and that is one reason that racism um, is so evil. It, it violates God's purpose to have one family. Providing the fourth one, providing belonging and fellowship to all who experience the death and resurrection of Christ. Fellowship, belonging. So by now, I have figured out that when people, when individuals lack belonging with the people they are with, they are totally lost. They are lost. I don't mean spiritually lost, but they are just floating, and it's not good. And so the question is, how, what can you do to create fellowship, belonging, opportunities for that? And so I like that we can be together, talk together, and uh, those of you who are capable play ball together. And uh, the rest of us can hang around the edges and maybe fellowship. Uh, belonging and fellowship. And the fifth one, making disciples. And of course, this is about missions, which I will say something about later. Missions, and, uh, and then for those who believe, it is discipling into growth, development, the image of Christ. And the sixth one I have is experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I'll talk about that later. The seventh, identifying gifts and providing opportunities for ministry. And uh, I'll just say right now that probably the seventh one we don't focus on very much and don't do much about. And uh, that, that the failure to do number seven results in, in um, I think I'll just say, in young people, um, not knowing what to do with their energies. And they will do something with their energies. They will. 
And so it's, it's, it's a difficulty, I think. So we need a compelling vision of the church as the place where these seven things are happening. And uh, the question I'm asking is, do Anabaptist beliefs and practices make it possible for these seven things to happen? Does it make it possible for us to be mentally and emotionally engaged in these seven activities? So going to the main part of the outline there, areas of compelling vision in Anabaptist Mennonite belief and practice. So first of all, Anabaptism offers a compelling vision of the work of Christ for us in his life and death. So what, what Anabaptism, uh, one thing it focused on, um, and scripture does, is that in his divine human person, Christ came into the world and experienced the world that we live in the way we live in it. And he was tempted in all points as we are. And he is the example or paradigm for how believers today can live an upright life in the world, in the same kind of world he lived in. And maybe you'd argue our world is worse than his. Maybe it is. And baptism often referred to the life of Christ as the inspiration and pattern for upright living and for them, suffering. That was a big deal. And so I'll give an example here of that in, in the Schleitheim Confession of 1527. They gave the following answers to three questions about the use of the sword. So the first question was, can a Christian use the sword to rid the church of evil? And their answer was, no, Follow Christ's example, that's not what he did. The second question, can a Christian pass judgment in worldly disputes between unbelievers? And their answer was, no, we don't have responsibility for the evil outside the church. Follow the example of Christ. And the third question was, shall, we, shall one be a magistrate? And they answered that one, no, follow the example of Christ. We are not called to rule over the lost. Uh, so the, the, Christ's life in the world and his example and his teaching, this was a big deal for them. Christ was able uh, to, this is another point about Christ uh, in, in us, for us, in us, Christ was able to receive into himself and bear to the cross the effects of evil. He bore to the cross all evil. Evil itself, 
and the effects of it. And he could do that because he was human and could so fully identify with the evil around him. He could do that also because he was God. And he had all power and authority over evil. And so he could bear it to the cross. And uh, Isaiah 53 describes that. He has all power to defeat Satan and sin in our lives today. And this, this is the vision of who Jesus is. He can forgive and deliver us from everything that he bore to the cross. And I'm not describing right now what the process is for that. I'm just saying this is who Jesus is and this is the um, a basic Anabaptist belief, it partly uh, arrived at because of the tremendous uh, suffering they experienced. And how, how do you go about surviving it? And the second one I have here is Anabaptism offers a compelling vision of initial salvation. So, they said the person who responds in faith and repentance to the gospel is regenerated. He becomes a new person inside his body. This is not something that happens outside a person in the mind of God. It happens inside a person because something God has worked a miracle inside a person. And because of this faith, repentance, and regeneration, God can say, this person belongs to me. This person is regenerated. This, God can say, this person is, the word is justified. And it's not the result, they said, of and they said this in reaction to others. They said this is not the result of God transferring Christ's righteousness from Christ to a, a, a record in heaven. This is something ha that happens inside the person. It's the result of regeneration inside our person. So initial salvation is not just believing the right things about Jesus in order to get to heaven. They said, this is about an internal work, a creation, something God creates in the person that, that brings a person into a life-giving uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, and they, it, that delivers the person from Satan and sin, guilt and shame, and the practice of sin, and that, that makes it possible for this person who's been regenerated to participate in the kingdom of God, in the work of God in the world, what he wants to accomplish in the world. And the third yeah, uh, here is Anabaptism offers a compelling vision of the resurrection of Christ for and in the believer. So if you would take Romans 6, 
that that's probably the easiest uh, place to find this. It talks about us dying, being buried with Christ, and being raised with Christ, and becoming a new person. And this, this is the idea that Jesus Christ is not only in heaven, sitting at the Father's right hand, but he is living inside everyone who has trusted him, and he, he is raising each believer from death and sin to life and righteousness. And th this is a burying and a resurrection. At conversion, and then in every moment of turning to Christ. This is something that is happening inside of persons. So during conversion and throughout life, the believer dies and rises with Christ whenever he or she surrenders or yields to Christ in the moment. And this is a work that God does in the heart. We don't do this to ourselves, but God does this in us. He dies us and resurrects us. And this is because he is risen from the dead. Jesus is not in the grave. He's risen, and he is saving his people. The fourth one, Anabaptism offers a compelling vision of the Christian life as discipleship. Uh, so this is the idea that Christ has done and is doing in us. He has done in us and is doing in us for us and in us so that we can live an upright life. I'm not saying a perfect life, but an upright life. And Christ and the Holy Spirit can renew our hearts and minds as we yield our thoughts and feelings and desires and goals, dreams, our bodies, to him in each moment of life. So th this is discipleship. And so they, they uh, spent a lot of energy on trying to help each other be good disciples. And sometimes, sometimes the way they tried to help each other be good disciples um, we would probably say it was kind of severe and unhelpful because it was hurtful. And that, that does happen. It does happen. And it shouldn't happen. And we're probably all guilty of it. That is, of hurting a person when we're trying to be helpful. But then the question is, does that mean we should just not disciple people because we make mistakes. So that, that's a big issue. Vision on how to, to help people become better disciples. Uh, the fifth item I have is Anabaptism offers a compelling vision of the church as a community. Now maybe this was harder for them to focus on 
<clears throat> because they did not have cars and they didn't go anywhere. Literally, and I don't think that you can even imagine what that's like. When, when in your whole lifetime, you don't get more than five miles from where you were born, the people that you know the best primarily are the people in your geographical area, uh, to, use, to use a, a medieval term, the people in your parish, like the one mile square, or two miles, or whatever it was, and of course some people got further from home than that, but this is the common. This is their people, their community, and everybody went to the same church until Anabaptists showed up. The church as a community. So Christ's disciples, his followers, through the work of the Holy Spirit and through other people. That's how God does it. And they had a high view of discipling. And then uh, they used this term excommunication um, as the method, as the method of excluding from fellowship and communion those who refuse to be admonished, those who refuse to grow as a disciple. I'm thinking things as I'm talking. Not everybody. Some people don't grow as a disciple, not because they refuse to, but they have difficulties. And maybe they didn't recognize that as they should have. But they excluded people from fellowship who did not grow, who, who continued in sin. And they viewed excommunication as the alternative to killing people. In their mind, this was kind. This was kind. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't kill anybody for not doing well, not living well, not agreeing with me. I actually believe that they thought they had happened upon some tremendous insight. Okay? Maybe they didn't carry that out the best way, but they really thought they had a biblical solution to a real problem. And a major component of community was fellowship, friendship, and relationships, and that's still true. And then, uh, probably more than we do, they practice community of goods. And of course, the Hutterites made that a system, which may not be the best, but I believe Anabaptists in general uh, emphasized sharing with those in need. Um, the last one I have, area of compelling vision is the practice of non-resistant love. I'm not sure if that's the best term, but we call it non-resistance. That's the term that 
was given to the idea. Uh, so the Anabaptist movement was birthed uh, amid opposition and persecution, and they were forced to have a position. And the issue was real and daily and in their face and, and actually influenced who would, um, who would become an Anabaptist because you knew you probably would die. Um, a few of us, I think I'm going to ask for a raise of hand because I don't think it's many. A few, a few of us have served uh, in what is called 1W service, and I'm just curious. I think Mel did, I did, who else? There's two. Two people here today. And that, that is, I'm not being critical of anybody else, but that is amazing to me that uh, since the 60s, this happened in the 60s, 70s, I don't know, how long, do you know, Mel? Seven, yeah. That, that it continued. Yeah, okay. Okay. Early 70s, maybe mid-70s that this happened, that, that people who conscientiously, were conscientiously opposed to going to war could, could be what was called the, in the category designation of one, of one W, a conscientious objector to going to war. And um, there was an alternative to military service. And you had to do something, but yes, it, it was um, yeah, it was it? It was uh, after World War II. It was an agreement that the government, in, in negotiation between uh, some Mennonite, I don't know who, representatives and the government. It was, this was agreed upon as okay and recognized. Um, so I feel, I feel just, just to clarify a few things about this vision of non-resistant love, I, I feel somewhat reserved about using the term non-resistance to talk about what this is. That's just me. And I feel, I know that's the King James term, but I feel um, reserved because resist, uh, when it's put that way, it sounds like we should let people practice evil and take no action. Resist not evil. You just don't resist evil. And I don't think that's what people mean by that, but that's what they sound like. And I don't think that that is really helpful. And the question is, um, what is a biblical way to resist evil? 
The answer isn't just to say that, well, we're not going to resist evil. I think we all know that's not what we mean. And I believe resist not evil means don't resist evil with, uh, I'll use the term, carnal love. I mean carnal force, sorry. Don't resist evil with carnal force. Um, so there has to be a scriptural way to resist evil. And that is to resist evil with compassion, resist evil with love. It means that we resist evil with the good of the person in mind. So now I want to mention, and my time is running out, I want to mention weaknesses of Anabaptism, or complaints brought against Anabaptism. Uh, the first one, a tendency to give only passing non-passionate attention to the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in the inner transformation of the person. A failure to properly emphasize the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in a person and to focus more on uh, what the person needs to do, the external do, which is not all wrong, but uh, this, this is one of the weaknesses uh, brought, one of the accusations brought against Mennonites. Um, we have a hard time articulating the gospel as God working in a person uh, in a miraculous way to bring about the change that Christ's death and resurrection is intended to bring. Uh, there's another failure, and that's to recognize the grip of habits. This is connected to the previous one. The grip of habits of sin and a tendency to assume that if you know what God wants you to do, and if you want to do it badly enough, you can just do it. It's a matter of willpower. Uh, and I've heard, I've heard comments like that made many times, uh, both in sermons and in casual conversations, and you know, when talking with someone about how can we help someone, people that we talk to. Um, and of course, I think we all know that um, that a per the direction of a person's life depends to some extent on the choices they make. We, we know that is true. But that is not the only thing that the direction of their life depends on. And uh, so then the question is, well, what would it take for us to better understand uh, the grip of sin and what a person needs in order to find release and experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Christ in it. Um, and then, then uh, I can wonder, uh, do we really understand the gospel? Uh, but I'm just saying that this is a weakness among Mennonites, is the belief that if people would just want to do something, they could do it and uh, failure to understand 
or what's behind to help them with the struggles behind they're not doing. I'm not trying to make excuses for disobedience either. Uh, a third, a third um, weakness is a tendency not to evangelize. And now this, this is fascinating to me. I mean, I experienced this too. You know, it's partly my personality, I say, because, you know, I, 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 um, I am not an outgoing person. Most of you didn't know that, but I'm not. I, I tend to uh, kind of be inside myself and be private and quiet. And <clears throat> I'm sorry, I see some of you are like that. That is true, though. Um, so we, we all have our reasons, but the thing about this is that historically Anabaptists were radical evangelists. They were. That they were so distressed about and concerned about all their neighbors who were going to hell. And they were convinced that if these people did not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would go to hell. Just like that. And they were determined to do something about it. Um, and then I would say, I think I'm right about this. Oh, and I want to say that a lot of things I'm saying this morning, it would be helpful if we could have a conversation afterwards. But we probably won't have time for too much of one. Um, I, I would say this might sound really critical, but I, I don't think we know what to do with people who aren't able, aren't, aren't living a holy life. We don't know what to do with them. We feel, I think, confused. Um, we're, we're just not sure. Uh, so maybe we need to think about that. Like Jesus, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he's able to be present to and for people and to work to change people. And uh, sometimes, um, sometimes I think what we need is more faith, more faith in God, more faith in Christ. Faith, yeah, let's see. Mill, his songs about faith. So evangelizing requires that we see the church as more than a place that maintains the purity achieved at conversion. And it needs to be a place where people um, can come to as a hospital where they can be received and helped to grow and experience the redeeming power of the gospel. Um, then the last thing I want to say, the, the weakness, tendency not to pursue the goals mentioned, those seven goals in the introduction. So where do we go? Uh, so I think we need to move, this will be very brief, I need to hurry. We need to move away from a simplistic view of the challenges that we face and simple answers that really aren't very good answers or they don't work. Uh, we need, we need to move away from a simplistic view, uh, which will allow us to stop, maybe stop seeking simplistic answers and dig deeper. 
like having a more realistic view of the evil we are fighting in the world and of the effects of evil in our own hearts. I mean, the reality is all of us have things inside of us that aren't good. They hinder us. And to the extent that we can't be honest about it, we can't overcome it. We can't grow. We can't change. Um, it would help, I think, if we could be more aware of what the things I've described here as, as uh, historically unique about anabaptism. I think it would help if we could be more aware of those or have them in mind and um, live out of those or understand them. And, and uh, embrace what is valuable and biblical in the Anabaptist tradition. I'll just say this. I, I know quite a few people have known a lot of people, young people, by faith builders and so on. And the fact is that a lot of young people and older and middle-aged are leaving our churches. A lot of people are. Many, many and uh, why is that? And I think part of it is uh, they don't understand their history, and part of it is that they 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 don't have vision. They don't have a vision for how to implement um, what they know. Um, so I think we need to think carefully about the unique beliefs held by our. I'm going to use the word tradition. It's not a bad word. And, and uh, think carefully about the lacks and um, what is it about who we've been that is valuable? Uh, what is invigorating? Uh, what can we embrace and where can we go with it? Um, so I want to read this yet. We need to come to terms with the reality that our unique forms and traditions do not hinder our ability to speak to the larger Christian community and the world at large. This is not a statement about the right or wrong of any particular form or tradition, but an attempt to help us face the reality that any hindrance that forms and traditions have is rooted in our own view of ourselves, our own view of our traditions. Any hindrance is rooted in our own view of ourselves, in our own view of their value or lack of value, and it's not rooted in other people's opinions of us. I don't think most people around are sitting there thinking those Mennonites are crazy. They're just crazy. I don't think so. I'm not saying some of the things, I'm not saying everything, all our traditions are wonderful and ought to be forever kept. I'm not. I'm just saying. They, they don't really add up to the reason that we might struggle uh, not do well. So we have, um, we do have some very significant things to say that, that others could benefit from. I believe we do. Uh, so, my last comments. We're too apologetic. I am too. Too timid. Too indifferent. 
And uh, as Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, let us rise and be going. Now I want to present that as the challenge. 